The scripture lesson this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. When the time came for the, their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward for, to the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about them. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was a great of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, in this moment, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May these thy people see less of me and more of thee until they see all of thee and none of me. Amen. Became a jazz singer during that last song. Since the first Sunday in November, when we recounted our exile from the Garden of Eden, we have been waiting. We have been waiting for our redemption. We have been waiting for these dried bones to bind themselves back together and to live once more. We have been looking forward to the coming Christ child. We heard the words of the prophets. We're ready for the Savior, this Son, with authority resting upon his shoulders, the one who is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We long for this endless peace that was promised and for the throne of David to be established and upheld with justice and righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. Well, this is it. We made it.
That worked exactly how I wanted it to. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but it seems like I've always struggled with this time of year, with this post-Christmas season, these few weeks that follow Christmas. Like a lot of people, I too get caught up in the pageantry and the glitter of the Christmas season. I drive back and forth to family gatherings. I exchange gifts. I eat far too many cream cheese-based food items. I spend too much money. I watch too much TV, and then it's over. Trash bags are filled with wrapping paper. Boxes are packed up. The new toys, socks, and other gifts are all put away. The radio stations switch back over to secular pop music almost instantaneously, and we watch the ball drop in Times Square, and we go on with our lives as if this is it, as if this is all that Christmas was supposed to be. I guess it's because there's this buildup and anticipation. Christmas is coming. It's Jesus' birthday. Peace and joy, hope, love, candles, music, angels, mangers, shepherds, justice and righteousness forever and ever. He is coming. The wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. I should feel different. Something other than my wallet and my waistline should have changed since last week. Where is the peace, the justice, and the righteousness? It's certainly not on the news. It's not pouring out into the streets. It's not in my house. We've been cooped up due to this cold weather. Ain't no peace in my house. Christ has come. I know this. It is affirmed in my soul through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, not just last week, not just 2,000 years ago, but every day since. And so in knowing that and believing that and feeling that, where is the break? Where is the disconnect? What's holding us back? As the black-eyed peas would say, where is the love? Have any of you ever felt this way? Yes or no? Yes? Show of hands, anyone felt this way? All right, good. Well, we can, at least we can all look around and know that we are not alone in this feeling. I'd also like to think that we are not the first and only people sitting in church on the Sunday after Christmas with these feelings. And if we're not the first, then it's probably safe to assume that these thoughts and feelings have been shared by many millions of people over the past 2,000 years or so. And as we will see in our scripture this morning, they were perhaps even shared by those who were closest to the Christ child during that very first Christmas. If we go back one extra verse in our scripture this morning, we see that following the birth of Jesus, the shepherds returned to their flocks. As wonderful as that night had been, and for all the miraculous signs that were given, the shepherds also had to get back to work the next day. The birth of Jesus and encounters with celestial beings apparently did not warrant taking a few weeks off of work, and they were back in the fields tending to their flocks now by day and by night. I imagine that the city of Bethlehem was also buzzing the next day, but more likely than not, it was a buzz with census taking and private family gatherings rather than the songs of angels or tales from dirty, smelly shepherds. 
Remember, the town was filled with people who had returned to their homes to be registered. But even though Joseph was from the house and family of David, he apparently didn't have any aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, or other Davidian family members with whom they could stay. There is no report of Joseph's family coming to see their newest relative. Mary's mother-in-law did not show up and start telling her what to do. So these two parents appear to be very much alone in the town of Bethlehem. The shepherds returned to the fields. They had no close family nearby willing to take them in. And there's not exactly a line of people outside the barn door looking to get a selfie with the Lord incarnate. It would also be a little while before any wise men showed up. By some means, though, we read that this new family stayed in Bethlehem for at least a couple of months. And according to the law of Moses, they then brought Jesus up to Jerusalem, about a day's journey, to present him to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice of two small birds. Had they been people of greater means, they would have brought forth a lamb for a burnt offering and a dove for a sin offering. But being poor and not able to reach the price of a lamb, they brought two pigeons. They were probably loaded up with a number of other things as well, since according to Luke, when they finished their business in the temple, they headed back north home to Galilee and Nazareth. And so these few verses from Luke, verses 20 to 25, they kind of encapsulate this post-Christmas scene for those around Bethlehem and for those who were closest to Jesus. Jesus' parents were poor. They may have been shunned by Joseph's extended family since Mary was impregnated before their marriage by someone who was very much not Joseph. We know that they had spent at least some of their time in Bethlehem taking care of bureaucratic business and living in less than ideal conditions. And although they had a few visitors on Christmas Eve, almost everyone immediately returned to work. And for the next month and a half, these new parents of the world's salvation probably wondered where their next meal was coming from and if they would have the money and the means to get home. And as, as if that wasn't enough to deal with, imagine having angels showing up in your dreams again only to tell you that you need to take your new family to Egypt because King Herod has lost his mind. For the adults in the room, that's in Matthew chapter 2 and is also a part of this post-Christmas narrative. Without question, the very first Christmas was just as uncertain, unsettling, and confusing for those who experienced it as it is for us today. Perhaps, I would argue, even more so. And my friends, these are difficult things to preach on. This is not nice, happy Christmas stuff. It's also difficult just to wrap our minds around some of this because we have to hold so much of this in tension. We must somehow find balance between the birth of this beautiful child and the broken world into which he was born. This is where we wrestle with our faith and we work to discern the truest sense of who God is and figure out what God is doing and why. 
In my courses at Duke this past summer, I learned that this feeling and concept of incompleteness is often referred to as the already, not yet. Yes, Christ was born to redeem us, but we still live in a sin-fallen world. The kingdom of God has indeed come to earth, but it did not come in an instantaneous and abrupt manner. The God who called forth light and life itself with nothing but words. The God who can do anything and can flip this world right on its head in the twinkling of an eye has instead chosen to put on mortal flesh, to walk alongside us, to grow, live, and die as one of us. Our God has chosen to take the long way around. And in doing so, has invited us into the process of our own redemption. And this is the tension that we live in. It's the incompleteness. It is the tension to which Christ was born, and it is the already, not yet, that is brought about through the incarnation. It continues on through the life of Christ, on up through a couple thousand of years to this very moment, and we have acknowledged it here this morning. And so what do we do with this tension, this unease, this incompleteness? Where do we find balance? Well, as most pastors would tell you, the answers can surely be found in God's holy word. What God has started, God will see to completion. We will not be outcasts forever. Our bones, too, shall be brought back to life. And so we must look to those who God has called before, to those who have dedicated their lives to the Lord, to see how they have responded to these same feelings. And so this morning we look to Simeon and Anna. Simeon, like us, has been waiting for God. His life has been filled with expectation and anticipation. He is righteous and devout. He is looking forward to the consolation of Israel and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew that he would see the Messiah before he died and so Simeon, guided by the Spirit, went to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, Simeon took him in his arms. Now if we put aside the fact that Mary and Joseph had essentially walking into what would be our idea of a megachurch slash airport, slash super mall, and then having some stranger come up and take their baby, there are a couple things we can glean from this encounter. Three big things off the bat. Simeon knew what he would see in the temple. He was guided by the Spirit to see Jesus. It was whispered into his ear, go to the temple now, and you shall see what you have longed to see. Matthew Henry, a renowned biblical scholar, notes that those who would see Christ must go to his temple. For there the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to meet you, and there you must be ready to meet him. That'll preach. Secondly, since Simeon knew that his death would come after this encounter, we can see that those whose faith comes through the sight and knowledge of Jesus Christ can face their death with courage 
and look into the eyes of God without any fear. And take note here too, thirdly, of God's goodness. It was only promised to Simeon that he would see the Messiah. But God's grace is always one of abundance and more is given than was promised. And Simeon now holds the Messiah in his hands. And it is in holding this baby where Simeon gives himself fully to this tension of the already not yet. It is in this moment and in the words that he speaks where the lines between life and death are blurred and the goodness of God's mercy and the sins of our broken world are intertwined. Verses 29 through 35 with a few light rephrasing edits of mine. Essentially saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Not only have my eyes seen, but my hands have held salvation itself. And now, having waited for this, and known this, and seen this, and touched this child, I have no need for this world. I'm ready when you are. Simeon goes on, Oh God, this salvation is a gift what you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And in case anyone need a clarification, all peoples means all peoples. It is a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And upon hearing this, the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about their child. And then Simeon blessed them. And said to his mother Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. It's heavy stuff. In this moment, Simeon with prophetic flair acknowledges with a mind and a heart at peace his own death alongside the light and life for all people. He blesses the parents and rejoices with them in their service to the Lord, but lest they rejoice a little too much at how awesome their new baby is, there's some other stuff that goes along with it. Matthew Henry goes on to explain that yes, it is true. Christ shall be a blessing to Israel, but there are those in Israel whom he is set for the fall of, whose corruptions will be provoked, who will be prejudiced and enraged against him and offended, and whose sin and ruin will be aggravated by the revelation of Jesus Christ. As the prophet Isaiah foretold of a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, so too did Isaiah also say that he shall be a sanctuary for some and yet a snare and stumbling block to others. And we see this play out later in Jesus' life when people begin to truly show themselves. 
It is in the presence of Christ where the goodness and the quiet affections of many are revealed through their embracing of Jesus and his gospel message. But there are others with secret corruptions and vicious dispositions that are revealed by their enmity towards Christ, and they will rage against him. My friends, this is the both and that we've been talking about. It is the goodness of God compared to the responses and actions of fallen people. At the birth of Jesus, the heavenly host of angels had promised peace on earth and goodwill to all. But in reading through and living out all of these 2,000 years following his birth, we see at best only glimpses of this peace. Simeon and Anna, a man and a woman, both righteous, devout, prayerful servants of God, were called to consistently be present in the temple. Both of them, endued with the gift of prophecy, were led by the Spirit to see Jesus and proclaim his goodness to all who were looking for redemption. These two servants lived under the occupation of a foreign nation. They were ruled by a tyrant. But out of their pain and out of their suffering and out of their dedication to God comes hope. And that hope gave birth to action and those actions affected the lives of everyone around them. So my message for you this morning is that it is not unnatural or wrong to feel conflicted or confused or perplexed by all of this. This is simply where we are and in many ways where we've always been. It is not, however, as Simeon and Anna make clear, where we are meant to stay. We may not be the first to feel ambiguous about this post-Christmas season, but we can certainly be some of the last because God will finish what God has started. You see, through looking at the actions of Simeon and Anna, I believe that this unease that we feel is designed to stir us to action. It is the Holy Spirit instilling in us a sense of purpose in the midst and uncertainty of the already, not yet, we are called to help create the that which is yet to come. John Wesley said, heaven begins now. It is not something at a distance. It is a present thing, a blessing, which through the free mercy of God, we are now in possession of. We're holding it. So if Christmas didn't bring about the world-shattering revelations and life-altering changes that we all wanted and needed this year, then let's make darn sure we don't let another year get past us. Scripture tells us that we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the message declared through the angels was true, then how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's from Hebrews chapter 2. 
our way home, our escape, our path back to the garden, our redemption and salvation, the story of God's unrelenting love is found not only in the gift and acceptance of our salvation through Jesus Christ, but also in our response to that gift. We must pay greater attention to what we have heard and we must not neglect the significance of this moment and the mission, ministry, and work that must follow it. My problem with Christmas, as it turns out, has nothing to do with Christmas because I have let the carols fade from my ears. I have packed away Christmas and put it in boxes to lay dormant. I have decided that if the world is really going to change for the better, then God is going to have to do that too. I've discovered that it's my apathy. It's my lack of motivation. It's my neglectful nature that has caused me to drift away. And this unease that I feel is the Holy Spirit calling me back. If we truly desire peace, justice, and righteousness, then like Simeon and Anna, our job now is to share this salvation with others. There are some people who have never heard this story. They don't know about the forgiveness that Christ offers, the grace that he brings for our needs, or the love that he has for all peoples. Like Simeon and Anna, we are to be righteous, devout, and prayerful servants of God. We must make a serious attempt to live for Christ, to follow him in every way we can. We must strive to be peacemakers who seek to bring goodwill between all people so that heaven can begin now. Be warned, though. This post-Christmas work is not easy. If it was, everyone would do it. There is a price to pay. Simeon went to the temple knowing that he would meet his death. And the words that he spoke to Mary said that a sword would pierce her soul too. To live for Christ and to share this salvation is costly. Dr. Hugh Litchfield, a former Baptist professor of homiletics, which is just a fancy word for preaching, asks this question. He says, is Christ worth it? Can you live the life of Mary caring for a child? only to watch them be crucified? Can you be like the wise men and the shepherds? Can you put your life on hold to worship Christ by giving him all that you have and all that you are? Can you be like Joseph and put your entire family and your ego aside to care for someone else? Can you like Simeon and Anna, 
dedicate yourselves to God through sharing the good news and living for God, no matter the price? Is Christ worth it? At midnight tonight, the ball will drop in Times Square. There will apparently be a number of parties. <laughs> and later this week, most of the lights from around town will be taken down. Our children will be back at school, and most of us will welcome the opportunity for a fresh start in the new year. Lord knows there is plenty from 2017 that we all could have done without. But I would encourage each of you, as much as possible, to hold on to Christmas just a little bit longer, to reflect on the songs of angels, to listen and be still, knowing that the Holy Spirit is pulling you. Be mindful of this great salvation so that you too do not drift away. And in the midst of our pain, and as people who have endured a great many things this past year, my prayer for us is one of hope. A hope that gives birth to action so that we too can positively affect the lives of everyone we meet. I will close with a short litany called Now the Work of Christmas Begins. It was composed by Howard Thurman, who is an African-American theologian, educator, and civil rights leader. He wrote, When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, hear us now as we silently lift our petitions of hope and peace to you. Take all that we are and all that we long to be so that we may serve you as Simeon and Anna have shown us. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.